So I want to warn you, give you a heads up real quick. This morning, if you like history and geography, you're going to be in heaven because we are going through Genesis chapter 10, and this is called the Table of Nations, and it's going to outline the family lineages that grew into the nations that we see in that area of the world today. So it is interesting, and historians are able to track down with a fair degree of certainty um, which people groups descended from which of these families. And every one of us alive today has descended from one of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, or Japheth. So we all got off of the ark together as family. And it's so interesting, and it really should inform how we treat each other today. And it's interesting that we were all family at one point. Now, obviously, all of these lines have intermarried. And we aren't dealing with absolutes when we look at these people groups today. So it's not 100% accurate to say that all Europeans that is, all people who live in Europe, are descended only from Japheth. And I hope that that's obvious, but that's my disclaimer. We'll be looking at where these people groups settled after the division that occurred at Babel, the Tower of Babel. We would certainly approach this account as Bible-believing Christians to be an inerrant account. But even secular historians regard this account as one of the most accurate accounts of these nations. William F. Albright, who was viewed widely as the world's leading authority on archaeology in the Near East, though he was not a believer in the infallibility of Scripture himself, he said this concerning the accuracy of the Table of Nations. He said, It stands absolutely alone in ancient literature, without a remote parallel, even among the Greeks, where we find the closest approach to a distribution of peoples in a genealogical framework. The Table of Nations remains an astonishingly accurate document. From William F. Albright. And this chapter is a genealogy, yes, but it's not exactly the same as the genealogies of chapter 5 and chapter 11, which trace lineages from father to son. This chapter, chapter 10, is not just tracing individual histories, but the nations that would develop out of these families, and especially as they related to Israel around the time of the conquest of Canaan. This isn't meant to be an exhaustive catalog of every nation, but it's a list that would help Israel understand the origins of the people they would encounter during their conquests. Now, we see this chapter divided into three main sections, and they're according to these three sons. In verse 1 through 5, you'll see the descendants of Japheth. In verses 6 through 20, you'll see the descendants of Ham. And in verses 21 through 32, you'll see the descendants of Shem. And there is a lot of information out there on which people group came from, which of Noah's sons. But once you get past these general trends that we're going to look at, it becomes very speculative. So we don't want to take this any further than it should be taken. 
But we are going to look at where these people groups move to in a general sense. But that's as far as we're going to take it this morning. We'll be coming across a lot of strange names in this chapter and in chapter 11. And I'm going to do my best and I'm going to fake it till I make it. You won't even know that I have no idea how to pronounce these names. So I'm really just doing my best, but we'll get through them together. So we're going to look at the descendants of Japheth first. Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 10 through verse 5. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. Okay, so that clues us in on where we are in history. We're right after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Now, as I mentioned just a, a second ago, we all stepped off the ark together in one of these three men. If you trace it back far enough, we are all family. And that's one reason it's absolutely absurd for people to treat others differently based on their skin color, their national origin, et cetera, et cetera. Especially as believers, right? And we'll see at the very end a really cool little picture that's put before us in Acts. We are all one under Christ. It doesn't matter the, what they call race, the ethnicity. It doesn't matter. If you're in Christ, we're all family. The Bible truly knows nothing of races. Nothing. The Bible never groups people based on skin color or based on what we would call today race. Verse 5 here is a great example of how the Bible does group people. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. And you can also see verses 20 and 31 in this same chapter. All the way through the Bible to the end, there is no mention of races of humans, only the race of humanity. That is, the human race. All the way down to Revelation 7, 9, we see similar lines of demarcation when referring to these people groups. Revelation 7, 9 reads, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the, the throne and before the Lamb. And I'll mention that if certain Christians have interpreted the Bible in a racist manner, the error lies in the interpretation, not in the truth contained in the Bible. In fact, Jesus consistently broke down cultural barriers to reach people. You see, the woman at the well, that's a prime example. The Samaritans and the Jews were not to talk to each other. 
Jesus broke down that barrier. Now, verse 2 through 5, the sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. Now, again, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the details here. Oh, I, I wore a bright colored shirt today too because I knew that we were going to be going through a genealogy. I wanted something to help you stay awake. But some of these descendants of these men will be key players in other biblical events and in prophecy. So we want to take some time to see the root of these people. So I'm going to go through them fairly quickly, but make special mention of the ones that we should take note of. We've got a map to throw up on the screen real quick. And we'll leave this up for quite a while so you can see it. If you can't see it, you're welcome to move down towards the front if you'd like to, but that's up to you. So we're going to start with Japheth. That's verses 1 through 5. I'm going to look here at the sons and grandsons. There's a couple of different generations listed out here. And you're going to see Japheth's descendants in green on the map up here. Okay. Okay, you can see it then? See Greece right there? Yes. All right, I'm going to stand right here while we do this. Okay. <laughs> so we've got the descendants of Japheth in green up here. We've got a lot up here towards Turkey, Armenia, uh, up north, Greece, and a couple down here, Philistia, Kittim, um, and then Magog's up north. So Gomer would be in Germany, Crimea, and he would have stretched up through here. Ashkenaz was one of Gomer's sons. That would be Germany, the Saxons, Scandinavia. And German Jews today still call themselves the Ashkenazi, so from Ashkenaz. Another son of Gomer, Riphath, that would be the Paphlagonians, according to Josephus, or there's some discrepancy, maybe the Carpathians. Togarma is the last son of Gomer. Togarma would be the Armenians, right here by Turkey. And the Armenians today still call themselves the house of Togarma. So we know that's probably where they came from. The second son of Japheth was Magog. And Magog would be up in the Georgia area. It's still called Georgia today. And they would be the Scythians. So what turned into southern Russians would be Magog. Magog is an important group of people because you'll run into them again in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And they are going to be players in the end times. And Magog is connected to two other sons of Japheth as well, Tubal and Meshech. And they also descended and became what is now the Russians. There's also a mention of the ancestor named Rosh in Ezekiel 38.2. Rosh is probably where the modern name Russia derived from. And so all, all four of those, Magog, Rosh, Tubal, and Meshech, were probably all descending into what are now the Russians. Tubal's name probably is where Tobolsk comes from, 
And Meshach's name is probably where Moscow comes from. And so we see all of these kind of fitting together. Madai, another son of Japheth, would turn into the Medes, the Aryans, and the people in India. Javan would turn into the Ionians, the Greeks, and the coastland people. Right there. So there's Greece right there. That'd be Javan. Javan's son, Elisha, Elisha, however you say that, and Tarshish, another son of Javan. Tarshish, you may recognize the name. It's also a place that's referred to a handful of times in the Bible. It was where Jonah tried to go when God called him to preach to Nineveh. And why did Jonah want to go to Tarshish? Well, it was because in his mind, that was the furthest you could go from where God called him to Nineveh. Nineveh would be right here by Togarma off of the Tigris. Instead of going there, Jonah finds a boat and goes this way. <laughs> so that's where he was headed, not where God wanted him to be. And so the big fish comes in and takes Jonah back to do what he needs to do. Um, there is some discrepancy over where the place Tarshish is. Some think it's in Spain. I think it likely is in Spain. Others think it's Crete. Others think it's Cyprus. And others think it's way over here in the British Isles. So there is some, some sources that tell us that the area of what is now Britain was involved in world trade much before what was previously thought. So there may have been some people over in Britain called it Tarshish. We're not sure. But wherever it is, that's where Tarshish, the son of Javan, would have put down his roots. And the people descended from him and named that city after him. Kittim. That would have been Cyprus and possibly some of the Greek mainland. There's Kittim, island of Cyprus right there. Dodanum. Also translated Rodanum in 1 Chronicles 1.7, which lays out this genealogy again. Rodanum or Dodanum would be the modern Rhodes. And Tubal, another son of Japheth now. Tubal's name, we said, was probably connected to Tobolsk. Meshech connected to Moscow. And then the last son of Japheth, Tiras. Tiras, his name would have evolved into what the Greeks called the Thracians. So the Thracians, Thrace, and the Teutons would have come from Tiras. Now, verse 6, we're going to look at the sons of Ham now. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sapta, Ramah, and Sabteka. And the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. So we have the first few generations here from Ham. So we're going to see the sons of Ham, the grandsons of Ham, and the great-grandsons of Ham. And those are laid out in just verses 6 and 7. 
From Ham, we get Cush, which is modern-day Ethiopia. And the general trend is Japheth was up north, Ham was down south in Egypt, Ethiopia, and over in the other northern parts of Africa, and some scattered here. And then Shem stayed around this area and down into Arabia. That's the general trend. So Ham, we have Cush, Ethiopia. From Cush, we have Seba. We have Habilah, which would be in Arabia. Sabta, the Sabaeans. Ra'ama, be Arabia. And from Ra'ama, we get Sheba and Dedan. And those are names that you will probably still hear in that area today. From Cush also is Sabteka and this illustrious character we know as Nimrod. Nimrod was from Cush. And verse 8 takes us to some more information about Nimrod, the last mentioned son of Cush. And he's not included in the list of names of the sons of Cush in verse 7 probably because the author just had more to say about him. So he broke him into his own little section. Verses 8 through 9. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Calneh in the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the principal city. Some details about Nimrod. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. So apparently there was a time when he was not a mighty one, and then he began to be a mighty one on the earth. And we're going to take more time next week to look at chapter 11, and we're going to touch again on Nimrod. We're not going to hit him too hard this morning, but a couple things I want to point out to you. Mighty one in the original Hebrew is Gibor, and in the singular it's Gibor, in the plural it's Giborim, and this can be translated mighty one, tyrant, warrior, Valiant man, it can also be translated giant. And there is an instance of that. When describing the giants of Genesis 6-4, the author uses the word gibor, the same word for mighty men, in its plural form, giborim. So Genesis 6-4 says, There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the Giborim, the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And it also says that Nimrod was known for being a mighty hunter before the Lord. And, you know, and he was probably proficient at killing animals for food. He was probably a good hunter. He kind of had to be to eat. But that's not really what the author is trying to tell us here. We may tend to think a mighty hunter before the Lord means that Nimrod subjected himself to the Lord or bowed to the Lord like we would bow before the Lord, but that is 
almost the opposite of what's trying to be communicated here. The idea is that Nimrod was against the Lord, in defiance of the Lord. A mighty hunter before the Lord would more accurately and completely be translated as ensnaring men against the Lord. So this idea of hunting carries with it an insinuation of entrapment or ensnarement. Ensnaring men against the Lord. Josephus, the first century historian, wrote this about Nimrod. Now it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. He was the grandson of Ham, the son of Noah, a bold man and of great strength of hand. He persuaded them not to ascribe it to God as if it was through his means they were happy, but to believe that it was their own courage which procured that happiness. In other words, Nimrod convinced the people that they were the source of their own happiness. Does that sound like anything you know of? Sounds like what they're trying to do today. And instead of God being the source of their happiness, they were the source of their happiness. And that just started this whole rebellion that we're going to see in chapter 11. He drew their affections away from God and to himself as their leader. He was a mighty hunter of men in defiance of God. And like I said, we'll spend more time on Nimrod next week and Babylon. But for now, I just want you to know that Nimrod is considered to be the first world dictator, and he was the king of Babylonia. Verse 10 It says, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Calneh in the land of Shinar. So Nimrod's kingdom was centered around Babel, which was situated just off the Euphrates River in what is now Iraq. Hilla, Iraq is the modern city that sits near the ruins of ancient Babel. It's 50 miles south of Baghdad. So if you see where Nimrod is situated on the map here, that'd be right around where Babel is. Baghdad would be just north of the Tigris, right about there. And Eric, which was also spelled U-R-U-K, Uruk, and you'll see that in the history textbooks occasionally, Erek was 100 miles southeast of Babylon and Akkad. And it was also spelled A-K-K-A-D, Akkad. And it's where the Akkadian Empire took root. And they branched out from Akkad. The Akkadians, also synonymous with the Sumerians, which you may be familiar with. And Kalne has not yet been identified but we do know that it's somewhere in that same area in southeastern Iraq because the Bible calls this area the land of Shinar. And we know that that's where Shinar is. On verse 11, from that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth Ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the principal city. The King James Version kind of struggles with the translation of verse 11. 
but the New King James Version has corrected it to from the land he, speaking of Nimrod, went to Assyria and built these cities. And so just want to make you aware of that. A few of these ancient cities have also been found. Nineveh is about 200 miles north of Babylon in modern-day Mosul, Iraq, on the Tigris River. So again, there's Babylon, about 200 miles north on the north side of the Tigris right there would be Nineveh. And about 20 miles south of Nineveh was Kala, also on the Tigris. And the name of modern-day Kala is Nimrud, Iraq. Seriously. So that name of their founder, Nimrod, kind of stuck with that little city. Well, big city. It was a big city. Rezin and Rehoboth have not been found yet, but verse 12 says that Rezin is between Nineveh and Kala. So there has to be, has to be somewhere in that 20-mile stretch. And all of these cities kind of blended together in like a metropolis area. And it's hard for us to conceptualize a metropolis, a booming city, this far in the past. We tend to think of these people as primitive, not very sophisticated. But in reality, these were huge cities. And like the DFW, you've got Dallas and Fort Worth, and they kind of grew together. That's what these cities did. It says that is the principal city, referring to all of these. Massive. And I know that it's hard to conceptualize that, but that's, that seems to be the case. Verse 13. Mizraim begot Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Neftuhim, Pathrusim, and Kazluhim, from whom came the Philistines and Kaphtarim. A lot of eems there. What does that eem mean? It's plural. That's right. So these names are given in the plural, which points to the fact that they're talking about people groups, not necessarily the single people. Mizraim, another son of Ham, he grew into... What is Egypt? Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Neftuhim, Pathrusim. Pathrusim would have inhabited Pathros, which is in the upper region of Egypt. Kazluhim, from Kazluhim came the Philistines and the Kaphtarim. Amos 9 and Jeremiah 47 4. Both reference the Philistines as coming from the land of Kaftor. Kaftorim, Kaftor. Kaftor was probably in Upper Egypt, although you'll see some references that say that the Philistines came from the island of Crete. They did come from the island of Crete, but before that, they came from Upper Egypt. So we want to make sure that we get that distinction. You've probably heard the term Palestine to refer to the land in and around Israel. But did you know that Palestine is a corruption of the word Philistine? Okay, And the Romans began calling that region by the name of Israel's enemies, 
Philistine, Philistia, to deny Jewish presence in that region. That was the purpose of referring to that land as Philistia. And the very term Palestine, and certainly the intent behind it, is very anti-Jewish. So we want to be aware of that. When you hear Palestine in the news, this is where that comes from. And then the last son of Ham, I'm sorry, second to last, Put, which would be Libya. Now, Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, and the Sinite, the Arvidite, the Zimmerite, and the Hamathite. Afterward, the families of Canaanites were dispersed. All from Canaan. I want to remind you, back in chapter 9, verse 25, Noah pronounces this prophecy slash curse on Canaan. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. So when we see these children of Canaan, that's who we're talking about in that curse from Noah. He lists all of these people groups. Some would turn into nations themselves. Do they ring a bell for you? Have you heard them somewhere else in the Bible? You have. Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 and 2. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them nor show mercy to them. There are some bold words. God is referring to the nations descended from Canaan the Canaanites. So these tribes are all collectively called the Canaanite tribes because of their descent from Canaan. But the Amorites were one of the most prominent tribes. So you'll see the specific term Amorites sometimes used to refer to the general Canaanite group of people. So when you see Amorites... You want to make sure that you know exactly what it's talking about. Genesis fifteen sixteen is an example of Amorites used in place of the term Canaanites. In Genesis fifteen sixteen, God tells Abraham that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And he's referring to the whole land, not just the tribe of Amorites. Now, verse 19 and the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza. Then, as you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. And verse 19 is really just outlining the land of Canaan, which was the promised land, which Israel would come to possess sometime later. So we see this thread starting here 
that's going to go through the conquests and the Israelites will eventually end up in the land of these tribes of Canaan. Okay, We want to get this big picture because I know it's hard to zoom in and look at all of these names. So we're trying to get some context in here as well. Verse 21 begins this last section on the sons of Shem. And children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder. The sons of Shem were Elam, Ashur, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. I like those names better. The single-syllable ones. So we're seeing generations from Shem here. Elam would grow into Persia in modern-day Iran. Ashur would be Assyria. Arphaxad. This is really the important one. If you take note of anyone in this whole teaching this morning, take note of Arphaxad. Arphaxad is the son of Shem. Arphaxad would begot Selah and Eber, and that would continue on to Peleg and others into Christ. So Arphaxad is the one who is in the royal lineage of Jesus Christ. The house of Shem. We have Lud, another son of Shem. We have Aram. And then from Aram, he has Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Now, verse 25 To Eber were born two sons. Eber comes from Salah, comes from Arphaxad, comes from Shem. Eber's two sons, the name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And we'll see more from Joktan in verse 26. But Peleg is really the interesting one. And Peleg's ma- name means division. And the author spells it out for you right here, for in his days the earth was divided. What's he talking about? What is this division? The author felt it necessary to include that bit of information for us. Some people think that this is when the continents were broken up from a single landmass into the continents that we have today. I don't think so. I think that the flood would account for the breaking up of continents much better, has much more explanatory power, than this strange reference. Now, it is true that when it says the earth was divided, that word earth could mean land, could mean soil, it could mean all of these things that point to a physical division, but that's really the only hint that we see in that direction. The greater context of the passage is talking about the division of peoples, of languages, of nations, of tongues. So I think that that's really where the author is going with this. A vague reference like this does set you up to do one thing. It sets you up 
to go into greater detail later about what you've just mentioned. And I think that the author does this because in the beginning of chapter 11, we get more details about this division. Um, This division obviously happened at the Tower of Babel when God dispersed them and confused their languages. And I think that's really what this division of the earth seems to be alluding to. By the way, it's not at all necessary to postulate continental drift to account for the people groups that we see in remote places of the globe. Migrations across the former land bridges at the Bering Strait and the Malaysian Strait could account for much of this movement of humanity. Plus, all of these people were closely descended from Noah, who built the ark. You see where I'm going? So they probably had good seafaring capabilities, right? So they could have migrated also across the water. If there was, in fact, a great movement of the Earth's land masses, it seems strange to me that chapter 11, which details the events of this division, does not mention any division of continents, only a division of tongues. So I think that's what we've got in view here. Now, Joktan, the other son of Eber. Joktan was the brother of Peleg, and Joktan's sons are listed out as well. Now, we're not going to concern ourselves much with Joktan's sons, um, but if you're playing an obscure game of Bible trivia, you might need to know this. So, we won't take a whole lot of time there. Joktan begot Almadad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, Jerah, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. Those three names in verse 29 are interesting. Ophir and Havilah, the locations by those names are noted in the Bible for their gold. Interesting. And some believe that this Jobab may be the Job of the book of Job. So all heard of Job, especially if you've been here when Jordan's teaching. (laughs) This Jobab could be Job. We're not sure, but it's something to consider. If it is, Job probably would have been contemporary with Abraham. So we've got kind of a timeline there. All these were the sons of Joktan, and their dwelling place was from Mesha as you go towards Sephar, the mountain of the east. These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. Again, those divisions that the Bible makes among people. If we add up the names of families given in this table of nations, we come up with the number 70. There's 26 from Shem, 30 from Ham, not including the Philistines, which is likely an editorial insertion by Moses, and 14 from Japheth. 70 names of families. And the number 70 ends up being particularly tied 
to the nation Israel. There were 70 of the house of Israel who went into Egypt in Genesis 46, 27. This particular similarity in number is pointed out by Moses himself much later as they're leaving Egypt. In Deuteronomy 32, 7 and 8, Moses exhorted the people to remember the days of old when the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations. When he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. So he points out the significance of this number 70 in both context. Also, Israel's history is divided into 70 weeks of years in Daniel 9.24. Israel was led by 70 elders, numbers 11, 16, and 25. There were 70 members of the Jewish Sanhedrin. There were 70 scholars who translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek resulting in this Septuagint translation. Septuagint literally means 70. The Babylonian captivity lasted 70 years. Herod's temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. So there seems to be this tie between the number 70 and the house of Israel. Verse 32, These were the families of the sons of Noah. According to their generations, in their nations, and from these the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. So chapter 10 is showing us how the families were divided after the Tower of Babel incident. That's the division. But when you come to Acts, there's an ingathering. There's a pulling back together of all of these descendants of these three men. Now, I thought this was very interesting. When you come to Acts, you'll see representatives from each of these three lines, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, coming back together under Christ. Paul, who is a descendant of Shem, comes to Christ in Acts 9. The Ethiopian eunuch, who is a descendant of Ham, comes under Christ in Acts 8, 26 through 40. And finally, Cornelius, a descendant of Japheth, comes under Christ in Acts 10. Very interesting, because God tore apart these people in Genesis 10, and he puts them back together under Christ. That's a beautiful picture for us to, to take note of. And now as we get into chapter 11 and 12, there's an interesting contrast going to be set before us. Chapter 11 tells us about the uprising at Babylon, which resulted in the confusion of languages, the division of people. Nimrod incited the people to say, Come, let us build ourselves a city. Let us make a name for ourselves. Very self-centered. It's me, 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 us, us, us. It's all about them and their abilities and their happiness. But in chapter 12, God calls Abram, later Abraham, and through the faith of Abraham, 
God makes a name for him. There's no strength of Abraham involved, just the faith of Abraham. And God makes a name for him. God says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. It is most certainly not by Abraham's self-righteous attitudes or actions that he was made great, but by his faith. And as the self-righteous attitude of those men at Babel led to their division, the faith showed by Paul, the Ethiopian eunuch, and Cornelius brings them back together. So it's this dichotomy, self-righteousness. It's all about me, selfishness and faith. And that's what we're going to see in chapters 11 and 12. We are going to close our study there, but I want to thank you all for being here this morning, for bearing with us through this table of nations. Um, This is one of the beauties, but also the challenges of teaching through the Bible verse by verse. And, you know, at Calvary Chapel, if you're not familiar with our association of churches, Calvary Chapel really believes in teaching the whole counsel of God. Um, We move through the Bible very orderly in a verse-by-verse fashion on Sunday mornings, and we just teach you what's there. So occasionally, you come into some passages like this, and I hope that we were able to elucidate some things, you know, teach you some things, but um, it's not always like this. Sometimes we're in, you know, real fun passages, and (laughs) other times we're not. But either way, if you're here this morning, there's a reason that you are here this morning. God has promised to not let his word return void to him. And so whenever we're faithful, we teach the Bible, we can be assured that God is working, and he is speaking through his word. So it is a privilege and it's a it's a wonderful thing that we get to do just bask in his word and we're so very thankful for that so if you would bow your heads with me and we'll close this out Thank mm-hmm. you.